You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 149. What's up, Mark? Jake, we have been so freaking busy. Let's apologize to our audience. Audience, we know that we have not been releasing episodes on a regular basis. And, and trust me, we want to. We have a lot of stuff going on. Uh, Jake and I have been speaking across the country. So our apologies. We're working on it. I will commit to you this, audience. By 2019, Jake and I will have figured out some way to release an episode every week, we promise. Just give us a little space, you know, you know, help us, support us, and give us a little space to actually get there. We know it's an issue. We're working on it. But we're back now. And before we get any further, Jake, if you want to support the shows, even though we haven't been able to get them out every week like we want to, do us a favor. Actually, maybe you want to talk about that in iTunes. Take two minutes. Leave us a review. It's the best way to support the show. we got a couple of great ones here. Greetings from Hollands by Jules Gel Zwick from the Netherlands. Hi, guys. Absolutely love your show. As a newcomer to the industry, your podcast has helped me to get up to speed with the industry. I'll be in Houston in a couple weeks, and happy hour sounds awesome. See you there. Well, I'll tell you what. You better come say hi both to me and Jake if you're coming in from Holland. <laughs> and then next one is, and Jake, you know Holland's a little bit further than Lafayette, Louisiana, right? Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah. Wife's Dutch. And then the next one. Next one is great avenue to learn about the industry from Fafashi. That's a Fafa, Fafashi. I've grown up around the oil and gas industry, but the technical terms were never an interest of mine. My new career caters to the oil and gas industry, and I need to understand current trends, terminology in the general industry. I was referred to this podcast to learn more, and it's excellent. Mark and Jake not only share current news, but they break down what the technical side is, uh, what it means, and how it affects long-term trends. I look forward to learning more, and I suggest you tune in to do the same. And you know what, Jake? I think you and I suggest that everybody should tune in our show too. I think so. So uh, like you guys know, uh, it's the first Friday Q&A, even though we're a little bit into the month. Uh, it's not necessarily the first Friday, but this is the show where you guys ask questions, you write in, and we hope to answer them uh, and provide you with some value. Before we get into the questions, I just want to say a quick shout out to Noble Energy for having us out for their Wave Conference a few days ago. Uh, they asked Mark and I to come speak about future-proofing their career to a bunch of the younger professionals uh, within their organization. I really enjoyed it. I think it was a great talk. So a huge shout out to those guys. Yeah, we've got some great feedback, and it was it was awesome, right? People walked out of the room happy that their company paid for us to come speak, and we met a lot of really good people. We were able to share a lot of really good knowledge. So if you have a company out there and you have young professionals, whether it's a formal or informal group, and you want us to come talk to them about future-proofing their career, let Jake and I know we've uh, done this for Noble. We'll be happy to do it for you. Cool. All right, let's get into the questions. We have a question from Patrick, who's a landowner in the Permian. He writes, I'm a landowner in the Permian. Uh, I love listening to you guys to stay up to date on the industry and hear what's going on outside my bubble. My family has lots of surface acreage, so our main bread and butter is saltwater disposals and selling water. How do you see the future of water with reference to fracking, and how would a landowner get ahead of the curve? I hear a lot about how water will be used and recycled. Also, what would be a good entry position for someone wanting to get into the oil and gas industry? Okay, so let's start off with the first question. So the first question was, how would a landowner get ahead of the curve as it pertains to to saltwater disposals, yeah. So there's a couple of things here, and it's we did. I'm sorry, um, Patrick. You can go deep enough for me to figure out exactly what you're talking about. A couple of things here. So the industry as a whole has been dealing with this problem for a while. You know, the old conventional ways of drilling, you needed almost no water to drill. Now you need actually a lot when you actually go to the frack stage. And the, our industry as a whole wants to make sure we're good stewards of the land. And so traditionally, we then disposed of that produced water, typically with a deep water injection. And that, that has its own issues. We've learned how to recycle the water, but recycling can be 
unbelievably expensive if the infrastructure isn't in place. We're getting closer and closer to be able to do that from a modular basis, which could drop down the cost. But if you're a landowner, you have water, a couple of things. Shell is using an online water. You almost look like a marketplace called sourcewater.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. And that allows you to go online and have one place to look for water sellers, water buyers in oil and gas, water recyclers, a way for you to do research. So my first suggestion, Patrick, is just go to sourcewater.com. Go check that out. I think it's going to point you in the right direction. And then as far as staying ahead of the curve, I think as long as, I mean, we're moving to the state, the, to the world of super fracks, right? And these are where they're using, instead of, you know, 4 million gallons of water, they're using 20 million gallons of water. That's a lot of water. If you have a rich water supply available that you can sell in your area and you're in an area where they're doing these bigger frack jobs, man, you need to get on the market. The flip side of that is pay attention to a lot of the modular water recycling, the cost that's getting cheaper and cheaper. I know here in Texas, the, the Railroad Commission is partnering with with landowners that want to install their own water recycling and help them give them some tax breaks. So there's a way for you to actually not only supply the fresh water, but look at a way to recycle that water so you can put it back in the system. And I think both of those would kind of keep you ahead of a lot of landowners who just have a big pond and they sell you know a six-inch hose being dropped that pond to pump water. Okay, so second or I guess the third, second, third question, what would be a good entry position for someone wanting to get an oil and gas? I think you pretty much answered that. It depends on where you are, Patrick. Honestly, if you're in any of the shell plays, you know, go just become a rig hand and you'll move up to roustabout and, and you'll learn the industry from the, the drilling floor up. That's really a great way to learn. Same thing's going on right now. If you have a, if you have a, a, a trade skill, if you're a welder, a pipe fitter, a machinist, carpenter, that there's not enough of y'all to go Truck around. Drivers. Truck drivers, yeah, there's another good. They can't hire enough truck drivers, and, and it's not that hard to get a classy driver's license. There's a lot of places that you could get a good job making good money in oil and gas without any oil and gas experience whatsoever. Yep. Cool. Thanks for the question, Patrick. On to the next one. Question from Diego. Uh, his role is uh, assistant GIS. I'm not sure what company that is. I am pleased to contact you for the first time and tell you that I'm a great fan of your shows for they really are an outstanding quality uh, and it brings a unique perspective uh, to the podcast environment. My question is answered to the issue of data technology and information sharing address in your show 146. I wonder if a web GIS platform are a good way of solving such a problem. Which problem is he talking about? We talked a lot about 146. Let me see. Let me just let me read it further and let's see what it says. Uh, having the company data, especially the interpreted and analyzed data, visually available in a simple form and being able to accessible via a hyperlink. It can be time-consuming to produce such a product for the first time, generating a visual database and links to the folders. But after that, you just open a link and search your area, but see what has already been produced, its outcomes, and dig and dig into the correct department, do it once and save time for the rest uh, who are coming next. So, okay. Yeah. So, so your question, and this is the reason that we're building, we've been building well hub for the past few years is because stuff like this exists. You know, it sounds like you're trying to kind of build it on like a shared drive or something like that. And that is actually contributes more to the problem rather than actually solving the the macro problem. And the biggest problem that we see is the deep data silos where, where information is walled off or it's lost on a shared drive or a desktop or in emails. And it's not really in that truly centralized data source, a single source of truth for all of the information. So to answer your question, I think what you're describing is already being done, but that is actually contributing more to the problem than the actual solution. So luckily there's shameless plug, people like us, and there's other startups out there uh, working to solve this problem right now. 
Yeah, and so GIS is a geographic information system. This is old. This started off on the web. Think of um, map.com. Think of Google Maps, where you basically use a, a build a framework for taking data and attaching it to geography. Basically, think about attaching it to maps. So if I understand your question, Diego, you're, you're asking about all this data that's in oil and gas. So would a GIS system make it easier for companies to use that data to solve problems? It depends on the data. If it's data that has relevance, so if I'm an operator and I wanted to see where all my wells were in Texas or in the U.S. or whatever, a GIS system would be awesome for that. However, if I'm an operator and I'm looking at all my geoscience data, GIS is not the right platform to have that, right? You're talking about a, a good augmented reality with good 3D spatial imaging where that data would be better off displayed. And so what Jake is talking about is instead of building a bunch of different tools that don't necessarily uh, talk to each other so that you can look at your data in each one of those tools and make your decision. If you think about that workflow, you're moving from one tool to another to another. A lot of times you're spending a lot of time finding the right data, cleaning it up to stick it in the tool. And what Jake's doing is eliminate all of that. And he's, he has a single data lake and he has one tool that can do everything. And I don't really mean everything. So Jake, I don't think, I don't think WebHub can cook breakfast yet, but Not quite. Um, you know, it's, it's, yeah, but maybe maybe in a future upgrade, but it's a different way of thinking about. It. So instead of thinking about different platforms to access the data, think about having the data in one place, having it clean and having one platform that can do a myriad of different things. That is a much more efficient way because once you're into that tool, once you're in that platform, you don't have to come back out of it. So good question. And Jake, I checked out his company, WSP. I'm not sure if they pronounce it or anything. It looks like they're an engineering solutions company. It looks like they do a lot of GIS work which makes sense when you're building stuff, right? So if you're a company that's building buildings or roads or bridges, GIS is probably pretty cool. Data in oil and gas is way more complex and way more varied. A GIS platform would be helpful for some of that data, but quite honestly, for a lot of it, it really wouldn't be. I agree. And so next question, wait, is Patrick Moreland again? Is this the same question or is this a different question? Let's see. Wait, is this a different Patrick? I know this is the exact same Patrick. This is the first one. So we've got them on here twice. Okay, let's see if this question is different than the first one or not. Uh, with more and more operators <laughs> reclaiming their own used water, how does a small outfit landowner uh, contribute to the recycling cause slash get in on the action? So reclaiming their own used water. So we're, we're going to throw out deep water injection, right? Our disposal wells in this question. We talked about some of the tools in Patrick's earlier question. The other thing, Patrick, you might need to be aware of, and I don't even know what part of the country you're in. I'm going to say you're in the U.S., but the other thing is the Railroad Commission in Texas and then also the EPA used to require different permits. So an operator had a separate permit to deal with fresh water, a separate permit to deal with produced water, and a separate permit to deal with recycled water. And they since our, our current political administration has since cleaned that up so that you don't have to have all these separate permits. The thing to do if you're a landowner, you're looking to tap into this. I would reach out to your local operators that are in your area. They don't want to get into the wastewater treatment business. That's not their core business. They do it because it works for them. But you could actually form a partnership. If you have three or four operators in the area, you could actually reach out and form a partnership where they may fund you to build the, the reclamation units that you need to reclaim their water. It would be a group effort. So the cost for each one of them would be less for doing it themselves. And because you're an independent third party, you're not going to play favorites. And they know that. So they can make sure their water is clean, how 
it should be. They can make sure it passes all the right tests. And then they get to use that reclaimed water in their fracking operations, which is much cheaper, usually, if it's done properly, than using fresh water. Another thing, Patrick, you may want to think of is you might want to kind of get into the water chemistry of this. The water you need for fracking a well doesn't have to be the same grade of water that you water crops with or that you comes out of your faucet. It can have some salt in it. It can have some other impurities. So if you have access to brackish water, that works great for fracking. And honestly, nobody can give you any grief about it because you can't drink that frackish water. You can't use it to, to water crops. That's another whole world when that brackish water comes out of the well as produced water. All you got to do is clean out the, the heavy metals, um, whatever salts were used, if there's any radiation in there. And then you can take that same brackish water and use it again. So, and, and please, the chemist out there, I know that if the salinity gets too high, you can't use it. I get that. And I do realize that when that brackish water goes into the well, it comes out much saltier. But just let me talk to Patrick and I at a high level. So there, there's stuff you can do there. And the recycling, actually building the recycling part, has gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. The problem is you have to make darn sure that your infrastructure is rock solid. A lot of the new incidents we're having in the shell plays now are from recycling operations that have spills. So not spills from the well, but either transporting that produced water by truck, maybe not having pipelines that are robust enough where, where the spills are caused after the well. So, so just make sure your infrastructure is robust and that you have everything in place. But I, I, if you're in an area where there's operators, I would see if you can get a consortium to work with you and build your own recycling plant. That's good advice. Up next, question from Mike. We don't know where Mike works. We don't know what Mike does, but Mike's got a question. With all the talk about pipeline capacity being maxed out in the Permian, I'm wondering, did they have the same problem back pre-bus 2014, or is this a new problem? In other words, how do we find ourselves here? Surely someone saw this coming, but the industry didn't react. Presumably, the downturn curbed capital investment spending, but I'm wondering what other factors are at play here. Thanks, and Simplify. Hey, brother. Simplify. Okay. It is a very good question. So, so no. They did not have the problem in the in the the boom that was going on before twenty fourteen because the the production numbers weren't there yet. What you have to understand is people don't build pipelines to be nice. Building pipelines is a business. And so what you have to do is you have to find an area where there's a transportation constraint, right? Because you're not going to build a pipeline where there's already a whole bunch of other pipelines. It just doesn't make sense. So you find where there's a constraint. And a perfect example here is between the Permian, between Midland, Texas, and the Gulf of Mexico. There's a constraint. There's not enough pipeline capacity. And then the operators are the ones that actually would pay for transportation in your pipeline. So you have to wait till the operators in that area start losing money because there's not enough transportation. So there's existing pipelines. There's always been existing pipelines between Permian and the Gulf of Mexico. They just can't keep up. And so earlier on, the production wasn't to the point where there was a constraint. They were able to get their product to market. They did not have to take a price differential back then because the carrying capacity of the pipelines weren't full yet. You fast forward now and they're full by a gazillion times. They're having to sell their crude at a discount just to get it in the system. And so now you're in a place where there's a constraint. There's a there's actually a dollar amount fixed to that constraint. And now you can go to an operator and go, look, if I build this pipeline, will you, will you sign a 10 or 5 or 20-year contract paying me X amount per barrel to move your product to market? And when they say yes, now you can build a pipeline. So this isn't new. This problem of having production and then needing to get it to market and pipelines. And then it takes a while for the pipelines to get built. This is as old as oil and gas industry itself. And it's going to happen in the future as well. One of the things that's kind of different is years ago, when I first got in this industry, my first 10 years in the industry, a lot of the big operators operated their own pipelines. So this way they could keep their own infrastructure 
at the point that they need it for their production. So Chevron had a huge pipeline division, Exxon Pipeline, Shell had pipeline, uh, BP, you know, Amoco, Texaco, they all had pipelines. And, and that's starting to change. It's been changing for a while, but the, the majors, at least here in the U.S., are starting to get away from running that infrastructure part of their business unless it's business critical. So unless it's bringing, you know, product or let's just bring a crude from their well to their refinery. They kind of want to get away from that. They don't want to be in the transportation business. So you're seeing that part of it change as well, but, but it's just, it's just simple business, right? It's sort of like um, McDonald's and Burger King. When you see a new neighborhood being built first comes the houses for first comes the infrastructure, the roads, then comes the houses and schools. And then as that population moves in there, both Burger King and McDonald's come in and they build restaurants. You don't ever see them build the restaurants before the roads exist or before the houses exist because there's no money for them there. It's, it's the same business driver. But, uh, you know, simplify, Mike, thanks for the question. And um, hopefully it, it helped a little bit. Cool. Next question is from Manuel. He's a senior manager of SCADA and measurement at WPX Energy. Uh, I have a question related to the June 18th podcast. It said the Permian pipeline capacity would exceed supply uh, around the end of 2020. What was this forecast based on? Also, pipeline contracts are long-term and may not allow the operator to benefit from more capacity and lower transportation costs. This kind of just piggybacks on what you just said. Yeah, so... Manual, we use a Ouija board when we do these. No, I'm kidding. So, Manual, this information comes from the market research that we do as a company, not Oil and Gas Global Network, not the podcast, my company, Modal Point. That research is predominantly interviews with business leaders. It's structured interviews, but it's still interviews with business leaders. And then what happens is basically if you ask enough people the same questions and the questions are written properly so that the questions themselves do not introduce a bias into the data and you ask enough of those questions to enough of the people in the same order, you start seeing a trend in that data. That's exactly where this, this came from. I don't have a crystal ball. We make mistakes. If you pay attention to us for any length of time, you notice at the end of every year, we do our forecast for the following year. So for around November of, of this year in 2018, we'll do our forecast for 2019. Historically, we're about 72% accurate. So I'm better than guessing, but I'm not a hundred percent. And then you went, so, so that's where that data came from. Hopefully that's helpful to you. Then the pipeline contracts are long-term. It may not allow operators to benefit from more capacity and lower transportation costs. You're absolutely right. But it depends on the way those contracts are leveraged and are hedged and the skill of the operator. You take a really good operator, when they get into the legalese of this, they have as many outs as they possibly can. And then the other thing is, we saw this happen in the boom before the crash, is sometimes it's actually cheaper for an operator just to pay the, the penalty cost and get out of a contract and then go back and renegotiate the contract. So that's that's just kind of you know basic you know business type of stuff. But you are right, Mike. I mean, sorry, you are right, Manuel, that the pipeline contracts may not allow the operator to benefit for more capacity. The thing that we think is going to happen is that we're going to have an oversupply of capacity. And once you have that oversupply of capacity, you have the transportation costs go down. Then the operators start thinking about things differently. They don't have to take a, a differential in their, their price of crude. If the people that negotiate contracts better have a lower transportation cost, they start pulling ahead the ones that don't. And at some point, it just makes sense to to see if they can renegotiate that contract. Now, from a pipeline point of view, historically, those contracts are what made sure the pipeline operators were always profitable. They were very good, very secure. And even if the operator went bankrupt, the pipeline company had first dibs on the money. So it was a very secure way. There's some things going on, and, and I'm sure Manuel will wear this, uh, some legal things going on that may change that mix. And if it does, this could change the business model of, of actually building pipelines. So we're keeping an eye on this, but good question. Thanks for reaching out. 
Cool. Next question is from Justin Blair. He's an engineering manager at Cameron. Uh, his question is, given the easy shield plays in North America, better drilling technologies, fracking, so on, so called, uh, driving costs down and increasing output, what are your thoughts on the future of offshore drilling and production where costs are still uh, high comparatively? Okay, let's stop there. So, Justin, expensive oil is dead until it gets cheaper. So deep water, ultra deep water, high pressure, high temperature. I used to say oil sands, but I think there's some technologies out there that's going to dramatically drop the price of oil from the oil sands uh, projects. But so, so it's just not going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean offshore is dead. There's still a lot of very inexpensive conventional reservoirs offshore that make good money. They tend to be in shallower water. The thing that you really need to be thinking about is how is the, the fracking business where being nimble and small is a benefit going to trickle out to offshore. And, I, and and Justin, if you don't know this company, go check this company out because they, they, they trip me out. So go look for Log. It's spelled L-L-O-G, Log. They are a small, independent, deep water operator. If you know anything about offshore, it, those words are never supposed to go together. Small, independent, and deep water are never supposed to go together, right? Because that's the world of the big companies where they can leverage their knowledge and their engineering expertise and their project managed expertise and their capital, where logs turn them turn that on its head. They're a small company. They literally are going behind the major operators in, in, in deep water and making money where they can't. And they're doing it because they're doing things different. Their business is different. And I could spend all day talking about this, but go check them out. They're, they're a great company, do some really cool stuff. Really to answer your question, but I'm back to what I said originally, the deep waters are dead until the technology and processes catch up and lower the cost of, of doing work in deep water. And that, that, that's a lot of robotics. That's a lot of advanced cognitive going on. You know, that's the point where the Parker drill ship goes out there by itself, drills that well, it completes that well. The robots show up, start building an underwater pipeline, make sure the trees are dropped in the right place and they go in production. Those trees will be the exact same. They'll be standardized, unlike they're doing now. And once we get there, which we will get there, and I think we'll get there in about 10 years, it's just, it's just not going to be productive out there. But it is coming back. So don't think that, that Deep water, ultra deep water is dead. It's just going to be delayed a while because all this cheap oil being produced by the, the frack jobs out there. All right, what's the next part of this question? Also, will the same shale boom that occurred in North America repeat elsewhere in the world, which would in turn continually subdue the offshore drilling and production market indefinitely? So yes and no. So yes, the shale boom that occurred in North America will occur in the rest of the world. Now, I don't think it's actually going to be a boom, even in the areas of the world that's going to really get into this. So China, Argentina, it's, it's going to be a trickle. The reason it was a boom in the U.S. is because our politics are different, right? So, you know, Justin, you can own a lease. Uh, you can own mineral rights. So can me and so can Jake. Actually, Jake does own some. <laughs> the rest of the world's not like that. So because it's a whole bunch of independent owners of the mineral rights, then you have a whole bunch of independent operators who come up with some really cool stuff like hydraulic fracking, right? And then they're able to go into production. And then what happens is part of that boom was actually, believe it or not, driven by the downturn. So the downturn happened. The rest of the world's trying to cut production to bring prices back up. And as an independent operator in the U.S., I go, I'll just produce more oil. Right? If I'm losing money, I'll make more oil to, make, to bring my, my profit back to where it was because our politics are different because individual people can own mineral rights in the U.S. It's not like that in the rest of the world. So the shell boom will occur in the rest of the world. It won't be a boom. It'll be a, a trickle. The biggest constraint for a whole world is infrastructure. They have to build the infrastructure first. Once again, the infrastructure has to be financially viable, even in a government-owned nationalized oil company. Once they get the infrastructure in place, 
the technology is transferable. Um, they'll start producing unconventional hydrocarbons from, from the shell place. So there's hydrocarbons forever on this planet. We, we're, we will not run out of hydrocarbons. And if we do, we'll run out of the center run out, run out of hydrogen first before we run out of hydrocarbons because of this. And then you ask, would it continuously subdue the offshore drilling production market indefinitely? No. At some point, that offshore market is viable, that, that deep water. Right now, shallow water is still very viable. And then you don't know what the future is going to bring. We don't know either. You know, there's different needs for different petrochemicals and different refineries for different types of crude. And if there is a crude that's very valuable and only can be found offshore, well, then maybe that goes into production. And that's not also looking at all the different types of hydrocarbons that you don't have to go deep water that are in the ocean that we're not tapping into now. Look at some of the, the crystalline stuff the Chinese are doing. So, so offshore is coming back. When it does come back, it's going to look different, way different than it does now. You have less people. You can have more automation. You can have more software running. You have much more efficient operations. So it's not dead forever. The fact that you're a, a BOP manager over at, at Slumbergy, I see where you're going with this. It's like I said, deep waters could be hurting or could be down for a while, but it will eventually come back. So I, I wouldn't be worried about this at all. It's just, it's going to take a little bit of time. Good question, Justin. Good question. The last question of the day is from Mitchell Fly, who's an intern at Noble Energy. He writes, hey, uh, I'm an intern at Noble Energy this summer. I had the opportunity to hear you guys speak this morning, and I appreciate all the insight y'all shared with us. I'm about to head into my senior year of petroleum engineering at Texas A&M. I enjoy researching different facts and discussion topics in the oil and gas industry and was fortunate enough to get to to get second in the student paper contest in the petroleum department at A&M. Uh, with that being said, I was wondering if there's any way that I can volunteer for the podcast, whether that's researching different areas, polling students on campus, both in department and out of it, or anything else of interest. I think that oil and gas will continue to be the future, but as y'all mentioned today, public opinion on it could be very dangerous. I see your podcast as a method of informing the public and bettering the image of the industry, and I would like to volunteer to help anywhere I can. Regardless, I'll still remain an avid listener, and we'll spread the information y'all share when possible. Thanks. That's awesome. Yeah, so I've already, it is awesome. I've already reached out to Michael. Him and I are going to have a phone call, I think, uh, next week. We'll see if we can bring him on board. The reason I wanted to put this in here, a couple things. First thing, how cool a name is that, Jake? He should be a podcast host. Michael Fly? Doesn't that sound like a podcast host? <laughs> Reminds me of like, like Marty McFly. I'm sorry, not Michael. It's Mitchell Fly. I'm sorry. Sorry, Mitchell. So that's one thing. The other thing is I leave this in here because we're growing. The Oil and Gas Global Network is growing as well. We have a bunch of things going on. If you'd like to play a part in this, reach out to myself. Talk to me. If you want to volunteer and get plugged into this really cool machine that we're doing really cool stuff for the planet and having fun, just let me know. The other thing is there's a lot of uh, students out there that listen to us, Jake. And if you have an interest in doing work on your campus that we can actually help you with, also reach out to me because I have this thing in the back of my head where I, I think that somewhere down the road, we want to start like an oil and gas students podcast. I've actually had some conversations with some couple of people out there to do that. I think it would be really cool to have a podcast where you're talking about going to school, all the stuff you're going through, the stuff you're worried about. So things like public perception, you know, are your friends, parents saying, oh, you need to get out of oil and gas because it's dirty and polluting the planet. And then, Jake, how cool would it be if we followed these these people as they got out of school and they got their first job so they could hand off the Oil and Gas Students podcast to another group of students in their school, and then they could move over to the Oil and Gas First Job podcast. And so we'd almost build like this history of 
learning about oil and gas, going to school for it, get in the industry, you know, and that could go on forever. They could have the oil and gas mid-career podcast. Now I'm an executive. So I got this idea I want to play around with, but in order for me to pull this off, I need a bunch of y'all students that are, have an interest in oil and gas to reach out to and talk to me and help me understand what this would look like. Like I said, Mitchell Fly, great name. You and I have a phone call. We'll catch up and um, I'm sure we're going to do something together, but any other students out there that want to get involved, let me know. I'd love to talk to you. Cool. And that wraps up the questions for the day. Uh, let's move on. Are we announcing Red Wing? bag winners or no yeah so if you want to win one of these awesome red wing offshore bags it's really cool no purchase necessary see official sites for rules and details you just go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast that's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast put your information in there we give away one lucky winner a week and we're to the weekly rig count by drilling info what's the account jake weekly rig count hasn't really moved we're at 1129 not bad okay it's not going backwards so we're in a good place good position to be in uh, events on deck. What do we got coming up? Uh, obviously, we have our happy hour coming up uh, July 31st, I believe, which is a Tuesday, last Tuesday of the month. Yeah, and let's talk about that for a second. So this thing has grown, and, and the audience is, may not know the whole story or the true story. The true story is Jake and Paige and Patrick, my, our core team, came to me a while back and said, hey, we want to start this happy hour. And I thought it was a bad idea, and I was wrong. <laughs> it's grown. It's become really cool. We do some really cool stuff. We think we found our permanent home for it. We'll know after this one this week. So it's 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 this thing sells out. We um, just picked up Carbac as our official beer sponsor. Looks like I'm talking to some people becoming our food sponsor. Sponsor. We got a, a wine sponsor I'm talking to. Uh, we have some, Jake does a really good job of bringing in some really smart people to talk about some really cool stuff. And so if you want to play a part in this, reach out. If you work for a company and you want to get in front of an oil and gas audience for very little dollars, much cheaper than any going to, to any trade scope, we'll stick Julie's email here. Reach out to Julie. I think it's $455 to become a sponsor. The other thing is we're getting ready to franchise this thing. We're getting ready to grow it. So every city in the U.S. there's oil. We plan to do one of these every month. So the next place we're going is San Antonio and then Dallas and then Austin, then Midland, then New Orleans and Lafayette, Louisiana, then Denver, Colorado, so on and so on and so on. So if you have facilities in those areas that you would let us use to do a happy hour, it needs to hold about 200, 250 people. Or if you have a business there and you'd like to sponsor one of these happy hours, you need to reach out to me now. So this one that we did in Houston, I mentioned one time on one podcast that we we're doing it and we sold sponsorship through the entire 2018. So the other cities will go fast and we haven't formalized that yet. But if you have an interest in any of that, reach out to me. I'll be happy to talk to you. And if you want to sponsor the one here in Houston, reach out to Julie. She'll take care of you. And then, you know, you talk, heard Jake and I talk about speaking at Noble. If you want us to come speak at, at your company or event or whatever, let us know. We love doing this. Uh, we give away really valuable information. The audiences love to have us come out there. We'll even come do a podcast from from your from your place, right? Which then drives a lot of exposure for you. And then you know, this is the first Friday Q and A. Uh, you know the deal. Submit your questions. If we use it, we will give you a big shout out on the air. And then if you go to the website, give us your email address. We promise not to spam you. Julie's doing a really good job of using that email address to let people know about the live events we're doing. And then finally, join the LinkedIn group. It's getting Microsoft's doing really good stuff with LinkedIn. It's getting better and better. I'm, I've been noticing, Jake, that when you and Colin do post, y'all sometimes get 20 or 30 or even more thousand views of y'all's post on, on LinkedIn. Even as high as 50 or 60,000 views sometimes, which is crazy. I don't know. Wow. I guess that the is LinkedIn awesome. uh, algorithms are just favoring us for some reason. Yeah. And so if you want to kind of play a part in that, go uh, join our LinkedIn group, Only Guys Global Network on LinkedIn. And I think that's about it. Anything else, Jake, we didn't talk about? No, I think that's about it, man. All right, folks, remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast. 
a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.